today we are talking with Dr. Bateman and Dr. Gorin, and they wrote a book about uh, related services. So um, I got a copy of the book. It's pictured in Dr. Gorin's uh, picture. I guess she has a life-size picture of the book and <laughs> her family. <laughs> I guess it's part of her family now. <laughs> it really is part of our family now. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So um, for those of you who don't know, Lisa Gorin is a speech therapist who's earned her PhD in special education from the University of Missouri, where she serves as the Director of Teacher Education and Graduate Studies for Special Education. And she teaches and coordinates courses in special education for students uh, pursuing teacher certi certification. As a speech therapist, she has worked in school and in the clinical setting in the university. She's served in, as the department chair for special education, and she recently co-authored chapters and books about developing educationally meaning and legally compliant IEPs, sexual, sexuality, education for children, for students with disabilities, as well as an article uh, for the special issue of teaching exceptional children focused on legally proficient IEPs. Dr. Bateman, David Bateman is a principal teacher at the American Institutes for Research and a professor emeritus at Shippingburg University in Pennsylvania at the Department of Educational Leadership and Special Education, where he has taught courses on special education law, assessment, and development of IEPs. He was a due process hearing officer for Pennsylvania for more than 580 hearings, and he uses his knowledge of litigation and special education to assist school districts in providing appropriate supports for students with disabilities to prevent and recover from due process hearings. He has been a classroom teacher of students with learning disabilities, behavior disorders, intellectual disability, and hearing impairments. He's earned his PhD from the University of Kansas and recently co-authored A Principal's Guide to Special Education, A Teacher's Guide to Special Education, and a Special Education Leadership Building Executive Programming in Schools, as well as a Developing Educationally Meaningful and legally sound IEPs and, and current trends and issues in special education. He was the co-editor of the special issue of teaching exceptional children focusing on legally proficient IEPs. I feel like you guys next need to write like the related services for dummies kind of book or what is it, the <laughs> idiot's guide to, <laughs> right? Well, I feel like we at least need one on acronyms and all of the different things that involve special education. So absolutely. Yeah. The book. Yeah, there could be a whole book on acronyms. <laughs> it's the the lawyer around here. His name is Jim Walsh. And he's he, great. He's uh, great. You know, he, him? He and I, okay. yeah, he, he, done a, he and I've done a number of panels together. Okay. Yeah. He um, calls it acronymic proficiency. Acronymic okay. proficiency, right? <laughs> He, he also has that great website. Was it Law Dog? Is he did that right. one? Right, right, yeah. right. Oh, he the one who does Law Dog? Yeah, that's great. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. had him on this um, platform before too. Yeah, yeah. he's he's good. he's funny. He's and he's yeah. very very smart. Right. Yeah. All right. So we're just going to get started with a few of the questions. Um, 
So one of the things I've thought about is that each district, you know, I changed districts about three, four years ago, and I was in my last district for like 13 years. So I got really used to one district, came to another one, and, you know, things are all a little different. So each district appears to have different related services and slightly different processes for providing them. And related services sometimes get confused with instructional services. And in the state of Texas, speech therapy is an instructional service rather than a related service. Then there are services that are called special considerations, and that seems confusing. So how are related services differentiated between instructional services and the things that we call special considerations? Well, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to answer that as someone who has been a speech language pathologist and a special educator within a school district, because I've served both of those roles. And it really is challenging because we do have a lot of different words for the same thing. And we have a lot of the same words that we actually mean different things. So when we look at related services um, in the area of speech language specifically, it is by the federal law, both an instructional service, it can be an um, area of eligibility. You can have direct services in that area as well as a related service. So that one is really special and really unique even within all of this. But I'd ask David as more of our legal expert to talk about all of this language about differentiating between instructional services and related services and special considerations. Yeah, so the federal law, and well, and I, I think, I wonder if I can talk about this. <laughs> no, it's just because I just signed, I'm going to do, um, I'm doing some work in the uh, great state of Texas, but I just signed a confidentiality agreement. So maybe I can't tell you about what I'm doing. But what's interesting about this, having read recently the Texas regs and paid attention very closely to the federal regs, is, um, the, the federal law is very specific that the services can be listed as either a related or a direct service. And it really, and it, what's interesting as in my role as a, as a former hearing officer, I really didn't care what it was called as long as the student received the appropriate services based on their individual needs. And so that's something that I think we need to remind ourselves of because as I, because I've just helped rewrite Massachusetts's IEP forms, and I'm going to potentially do that in two other states coming up soon. That as I'm looking at how we're categorizing these things, and every state has a different IEP form, um, and some states have multiple forms within their individual state. That we are uh, trying to figure out how to articulate what the what is doing what we're doing, but and that we're get we often get locked into uh, the precision of the, where those things go. And it's sometimes it's easier to actually categorize that. Um, but what you have to think about is as long as it's listed in there somewhere and everyone understands what the service is, I'm actually not, I'm not really uh, um, too, too worried about the fact where, where we put it because we have to provide, make sure it's being provided. And that's something that we need to pay attention to. So I, you know what I just did? I just did not answer your question. <laughs> just want to make sure you understand that. Uh, and I'm aware of that. But it's, it, it's, but we have to think about this is ensure that the services are there for the kids. That's what's important. And I would add to that 
David, I'm going to halfway answer your question, Ozzy, that when your question was how are related services differentiated between instructional services and special considerations? And really and truly, the answer is it depends on the individual needs of that child. So we can talk about systems and understand things in categories, but when it boils down to it, what are the educational and functional needs of that child? What services do we as the service providers need to provide? And then we figure out where those go. Got it. So, and then too, it, it, does it also depend on the district or like how they categorize it or report it? So I'm going to answer that and then I'll let David answer it legally. I'm going to answer it from my practical experience and the way that districts think about that. So you kind of want to look at it from the different layers of focus. So when I was a speech language pathologist and a special educator in a school district, I was a case manager for students. I also provided direct services to students. I was looking at what does this kid need and then trying to map that into the forms that I was required to use by my district. Mm -hmm. A district lens is going to look at it more of like what are the legal requirements and what are the compliance pieces and try to create a system that makes the most sense that it can and you know, reach as many of the people within their district as possible, but it all really does come back to what are the individualized identified needs of that child? Mm -hmm. What would you say? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take very, uh, she articulated that beautifully and I appreciate how she stepped in there. We have to remind ourselves that um, the IEP is a, in, in, in large part, it's a communication document. And we have to make sure that when we are articulating things and we're writing things in there, that first, yes, it, we think about it as a compliance document, but in the end, it's a communication document. And we have to ensure that what we're doing is effectively communicating to the necessary stakeholders about, well, first, what is what is being provided, who's providing this, when is provided, so that we can have an understanding of what is going on there. But it, as I think about it as a communication document, is you have to think about it as, a, as something, because many of these kids are highly transient at no fault of their own. And we need to make sure that what we're writing in there is something that uh, uh, is available for the new district to work with and understand precisely what needs to be done for these kids so that they can actually uh, start providing services instead of having to think about what is going on, what are we doing, who's doing this, and make it, make it easier. So think about it and write it in terms so that others can understand it. So keep that in mind as we work on these things. Right. So there are typical related services that just about every district has, like occupational therapy, physical therapy, transportation. But then there are some that are only offered by one district, not another. Like I've seen ABA therapy be a related service. Some people have music mm -hmm. therapy. Some people don't. So why do some districts provide more unique related services? And then why don't, then what do we do if we like get a transfer student that has something weird that our district just doesn't have? Well, can I take this, Lisa? Of course, go ahead. Yeah, she knows where I'm going to go with this. If you say that our district doesn't have this, um, you're making a decision based on administrative convenience and not on the needs of a child. And that's and that's that's a loser. And because if the child has specific needs that is listed in their IEP, then you need to ensure that you're providing that. If you, if you don't have one in your district, I don't care. You find it. Contract with a contract with a neighboring district. Contract with TEA. So just find it. Get it. What's there? Now, what's interesting about this? You get IEPs from neighboring districts, 
that may be, uh, for lack of a better term, gold-plated or providing the, the, what the old term we used to provide uh, is the Cadillac instead of the Chevy, which we're obligated to do. What we have to think about is what are our obligations? And I, I'd, like to, I'd like to address that in a little bit, but even, even if your district doesn't have it, you figure out how to provide it and do it if the kid needs it. Because uh, the list of services that are, uh, are, are listed, the, there is no finite list of what are the related services. There, because uh, there are kids out there who have disabilities that even if we were to lock ourselves in a room for a long time, we would never think of. So we have to think, uh, make sure that what we're doing is providing the services based on the kids' needs, not on what we administratively have. And that is really reflected in the law too. So the IDEA Act, you know, it really does say related services that include but are not limited to, and then it lists 15 of them. So when you think about includes but are not limited to, that's where that piece about individualized based on the student needs, that's where that lies. Now, that's the legal perspective, right? That's what the law says, and that's like, this is what we should be doing. In reality, sometimes we kind of get overwhelmed by just how much we have to do and what all is going on. And we think about, well, this is what I know we provide, and maybe we don't typically offer music therapy or we don't typically offer parent and guardian counseling. That doesn't mean that we can't. And if that's something that the student needs, then we have to find a way, whether that is working with a neighboring district or creative private company. I mean, those, it takes an extra layer of thought. It really does, but it's a necessary piece to honor the intent of the law, which is to meet the individualized needs of the kid. Right. So maybe like my old district, for example, they gave counseling through psychological services from the psychologist. Mm -hmm. But in this one, they have a special ed counselor. So if the counsel counselor could also provide the same service effectively, then we could have a transfer IEP meeting. And if everybody agreed that that would meet the need, then that would still be okay, right? Sounds like it to me. David, what do you think? Because you're providing yeah, good service, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the problem, and to, to extend your question, uh, previous question, was if you get a district from a, neighbor, a neighboring uh, uh, school district or from, from out of state, you, you, you are legally, when the child enrolls in your district, you're legally obligated to um, implement that IEP as if your district wrote it. And there are some districts who are wanting to make changes, um, and if they make a change that the parents don't like, then what then stay put applies. So you have, then you have to keep implementing the old IEP. And so what I'm recommending to districts, and this is, and school psychologists are not gonna be happy with my answer here, but that's okay, <laughs> is, is, what you're, is what you're recommending to districts is the moment that you get a child enrolled if, with an IEP in your district, um, is that then you then uh, immediately put a permission to reevaluate in front of the parents. What that does is it stops any clock of any comp ed claim about you not implementing the current IEP because you are allowed to actually implement what's going on. But then over the next 60 days, you do some evaluations, maybe do a battery or two of what you find from a Wojo or something like that. And then you uh, re hold the IEP meeting 
uh, based on that. And now you have wiggle room about potentially changing an IEP that has been previously provided to you that may be over the top or not what you don't think is appropriate. It's not based on what you have available. It's just maybe you don't think it's appropriate. And then that gives you the wiggle room to actually defend something as opposed to, well, we'd like to make these changes. Well, you have no legal re way recourse for doing that until you actually have some kind of evaluator tool that demonstrates either the child even needs additional or different services. So it's so it, it's the way to actually prevent uh, problems uh, and doing that one. So, right. David, I want to push back a little bit on that because I've worked with districts that will say things like we receive an IEP, receive an evaluation from out of state and we automatically reject it. So they're just like they have a policy in place that says we're just going to reject it and then we're going to conduct our own. Is that the same thing, but just with harsher language? It's harsher, but the, but there but while while the uh, you need to you need to make sure that you have a permission from the parents to do a reevaluation, um, but you there the district under federal law is obligated to be implementing the previously written IEP because that's the, you're you're on notice that the child is eligible for special education related services. You have a program in place, and um, and the federal law changed to say that this is what is that needs to be done. So they can't. If they reject it, that's fine. But then you need to you need to make sure that you're implementing something, and what you're implementing is the previous one. While you're conducting the evaluation. While, while, while you're conducting the evaluation, and okay. then 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 you then if you want to make changes, that's great. That's fine. But you now have evaluate. If you've done an evaluation, you have evaluative tools that can help you move forward with this, as opposed to just saying, "No, we didn't like it." So yeah. Thank you. Well. Um... So there seem to be a, several types of related services for children with hearing impairments. I seem to look at a lot of them. A lot of them have to do with hearing impairments. And these students have need like complex equipment. How do we know where the line is drawn between what parents are responsible for providing and what the school is responsible, responsible for providing when it comes to equipment? And David, do you want that one? Because it's actually stipulated in the law. Is it, is it necessary for the kid to be functioning as a part of school? Um, that's that's there, and there's a bright line. The bright line is if it's, like, for instance, a cochlear implant, then um, there's, well, I'll at least extend that one. But if there's a cochlear implant, the school district is not obligated to pay for a cochlear implant. But if it's necessary for the kid to be able to participate, then you have to think about what are we going to provide. So, and we do actually talk about that in the book. We talk about the bright line test as and have some examples in there because that is, you're right, Nazi, that's a hard conversation when you're just kind of in the middle of trying to support the kid. That That's a tough line to identify in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, that, I mean, I, how about like glasses or hearing aids? Those sort of things. It's not a cochlear implant. Districts are responsible for, are not responsible for those, right? David? Well, if you have a kid who's not, does not receive, who has, it clearly has a vision problem and the parents don't provide glasses, um, yeah, you're going to provide it. Oh, wow. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) So as a speech language pathologist, you know, it wasn't my job to fit hearing aids or to administer the hearing assessment or to determine, you know, what type of hearing aids were provided. But it was my job to do a functionality test with my kids to make sure that their batteries were working, their hearing aids were working in that moment at school. So we did a daily check. And if they weren't working, it wasn't my job necessarily to fix the hearing aids, but it was my job to notify the family that something was up and then also to work with my teachers on accommodations they could make in that moment when the student didn't have the hearing aid device in order to access curriculum that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be a problem. So (laughs) (laughs) um, is this, 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 this extend that even a little further. I'm working with a kid right now who who does not sweat his he does not have the ability to uh and sweating is a a vital function of our body for regulating temperatures and he just does not sweat and the school district is is asking the parents to provide an air conditioning for the classroom because it's his, his classroom that he attends is located on a west side of the building and gets very hot during the course of the day and you can see his face just getting redder and redder, and he basically starts to get dizzy, uh, posing significant problems for him to actually participate. Um, and so what, what we've done for that classroom is they've actually moved that classroom so that he's not in first in the, in the bright sun of the day, uh, changing, his, changing when he's participating, when he's in the sun, changing what his activities are uh, during the course of the day. But the school district's having to retrofit the building so that he is not going to basically kill himself by coming to school. Uh, no, we don't want anybody killing themselves by coming to <laughs> yeah. school. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. But so example though, because the the district said, oh well the parent needs to provide air conditioning. That's not the only solution to the problem. So what is the need? And we can find a way to address the need, you know, change classrooms, move things, adjust schedules. So that's not just a hard and fast yes, no, always. You can look at what are the actual needs of the child and then how can we meet them? Mm-hmm. I think that's an important question. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we've already talked about my next question, which is about the speech therapy versus is I think that's just so different in Texas. And is that like, I don't know what, give me some perspective. Is there like most states treat speech therapy as a related service? And are we the only different ones? (laughs) And why do we have to be different? Is it because we're Texas? (laughs) uh, I'm not touching that part. But what I am going to (laughs) say, I I am going to say is that if a child needs something who as a related service, for instance, you have a child who has a significant learning disability, but they also have an articulation disorder that would require the assistance of a speech pathologist. That could also be provided under, uh, listed as either direct or related. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different ways of doing it. Yeah. And ASHA does actually have some guidance about speech language pathology services, whether they are the primary area or they're considered a related service. And it really does have to do with what is the identified need of the child. So I've had to advocate for speech language services as a related service for an educational diagnosis of autism, because with an educational diagnosis of intellectual disability, all of them, to be quite honest, at some point or another. And then there are times when 
speech language is the primary area of impairment or eligibility for services. And then I have to really advocate for other services. Like they don't just need language services. They might also need specially designed instruction in written expression, for example. Mm -hmm. So really recognizing that it's not one or the other. Speech gets to be special because speech language is both an area of eligibility and a related services for all of the other areas of eligibility. Mm -hmm. We're everything. <laughs> right. So I've been sort of, you know, doing a lot of soul searching. That's kind of why I do it, you know, have the clubhouse um, because, I don't know, special education in general can be a very tough, um, a very tough career. Uh, you know, there's a lot of demands and you can kind of get to a point where you um, you get to quite frankly sometimes burn out. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I do a lot of research on why do we get to burn out? And it, one of the things that, you know, I thought maybe, oh, it's just a lot of paperwork and, you know, nonsense. And if I could just, you know, get to do working with kids and not have all this paperwork, maybe that's the problem or maybe it's just too many kids or on you know, my caseload or what have you. But when I researched it, it, they were saying, you know what, it's not really about the workload or, you know, the, the silly tasks that you have to do necessarily. Those are all contribute to it. But the top, top reason is because you really need to understand the vision and how you, what you're doing fits in that vision. So I've done a lot of soul searching about what is the vision. I've looked into the history of special education and like, what was the vision of our founders of special education and what were they trying to accomplish? And one of the themes I keep coming across is sort of this, um, mo the different models, like a medical model versus a social services model. And a lot of times this becomes very problematic when we start creating a sort of a medical model out of, you know, the services that we provide in the schools. And I feel like related services are, especially OTs and PTs, they do a very good job of this because, you know, they're, they're, they can be very clinical. There are, you know, clinicians of OT and PT and, and speech therapists as well. Um, but definitely what the purpose for you being in the schools is a lot different. The role you serve in the schools is a lot different than you would in a clinical setting and your goals are different. And I just feel like all of this is a real good model for all the special education um, services to sort of aim for. If we can, we would create such an inclusive environment if special education services could be more consultative and supportive of the general teachers rather than sort of like, okay, next, come here. We're going to do something to you and send you back. <laughs> um, so, I mean, do you guys um, have any special advice for how we can sort of describe this differences of the school model of services versus a clinical model to parents and teachers? Or do you, do you also have any sort of comments on how this can be a, like a role model for other areas of service? I have lots of thoughts. David, do you want to go first? You want me to take No, I, I, you are, I'm looking forward to hearing your lots of thoughts. Okay, awesome. So, you know, I, I tend to think in layers. And the first thing that you brought up is really that idea of should it be, or are we using clinical medical model versus more of a social model? And my answer is never to have that binary 
answer, right? That, that's usually not one or the other. It's usually a combination. And when I talk with my future teachers now, I like to remind them that we need to put things in the historical and cultural context in which they were started. So when we think back to when IDEA was written, it was really about anti-discrimination and access to school. Right. So we had a society where people with disabilities or difference were excluded from school. And so we're really trying to think about that lens is why the people who wrote the law wrote it the way they did. And it says things like free, appropriate public education, least restrictive environment, because prior to this law, they were very restricted if they got to be in the environment at all. And most of it was you know, institutionalized or just not educated. So it's really decreasing barriers, increasing access. And that was the focus. So then when you layer in what types of services were provided, the only model that I would argue existed, and this was a wee bit before my time, but it was more of we were pulling from these more clinical services, right? So we were modeling what we thought education needed based off of that. Now, our history and our culture has changed over the last almost 50 years significantly, and the types of needs that we recognize for our students have changed significantly. What we know about learning has changed significantly. So we need to keep that in mind as we're thinking about appropriate ways to support students now. What kind of interventions work? What kind of models work? And yeah, as a speech language pathologist, I did private practice and I did clinical services. And I had conversations with families about in this method, in a clinic, I have these laws that govern what I can do, and I have these rules to follow, which are different than the educational ones. So sometimes it's just educating the families and my colleagues about what those differences are and kind of the rules we have to play within. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop there. Like I can go on. <laughs> oh, and, and if you want to look back at the history, the Supreme Court has affirmed the need for related services multiple times because it was a case out of Texas where a girl who had spina, has spina bifida and uh, needed help with toileting. And the school district said that because she has spina bifida and needed required clean intermittent catheterization that the school um, could, did not have to provide that. But without that, she was not going to be allowed to attend school. And therefore, education was meant nothing to her. And so it, the, it was a case out of Irving Independent School District where the Supreme Court said, without this, she's not going to get an education. So therefore, it's not a medical service, but in, in a service that could be provided by, um, actually, it was being provided by an older sibling who did not have a medical degree. And mm -hmm. without that, it's, it, she's not going to benefit from education. So we have to think about this. Can kids, do kids need these extra services in order to benefit from education? And that's what, that's in the heart of what we're doing as a part of related services and making sure that they're available and they're going to be there to provide and help the kids as much as possible. Right. So I guess the purpose of that is to make sure that kids are benefiting from the school setting rather than what a clinical setting purpose would be. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because yeah. Yeah. everything we do related to school has to do with accessing the curriculum and benefiting from being there, right? So it's the academic functional achievement of the student. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to invite um, Dr. Hope McCarroll. She's in the audience.
up to the stage. She um, was my OT in one of my schools and now is a PhD, um, supervises other OTs. And um, Hope, I just was curious as to what is what are some of the greatest challenges you have as a, um, a provider of, of, a, of a related service in the school districts? Yeah, can you hear me okay, Nazi? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You okay, perfect. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for inviting me, Nazi. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so here's what I'll say is I agree completely with what your speakers are saying. You know, our role is very different in the schools and the way that we have, I guess, categorized that is a medical versus an educational model and looking at why we're there, what the benefit of our services are, Um, and really looking at the purpose and what is our purpose there. And so I really think what it boils down to, and I think where um, your speakers have been heading is that it's about making sure that our students have access, that they do not have barriers within their education. So for me as an occupational therapist, that could be something as simple as a chair um, to allow them to be able to sit up better at the desk that may or may not fit them the best way, um, to actually providing some sort of intervention that allows them to have, for example, better written output, that they're able to express themselves in a written format. Um, and so whatever that takes, you know, we're going to make sure that we do that. Um, and I just recently actually heard about that Supreme Court case you were referencing with the with the girl with spina bifida, and that's all about access. She had barriers to education because she needed that intermittent catheterization. And at that point, yes, it's a medical service, but we're housing it and couching it under that education model because in this particular case, it was a barrier. It was a barrier for her to receive that education, and we need to make sure that we grant that access as best we can. So I think for me as a service provider as an occupational therapist in the schools, you know, I think my biggest challenge has been to really educate parents, educate staff, that purpose and that purpose related within the, the school umbrella of increasing access. It just kind of makes me think about all the new technology that's coming out with AI and how many parents are going to start you know, maybe claiming that they need, you know, or saying, stating that their kid is accessing things through AI or, I don't know, it just, there's so many realms of possibilities. And Hope, I'm so glad you mentioned that because you're right, the medical services are kind of a tough spot. Like that's a sticking point for a lot of people to think about where is that line between education and medical. And that's actually why um, David did a beautiful job in our book on that. We have an entire chapter on healthcare supports as a related service. So kind of looking at where they really are, the related service and the school responsibility versus more of a medical responsibility. But your, your point about educating um, parents and teachers and I would argue administrators and others who are connected to the school and who are stakeholders in that child's educational programming, like that's a huge piece of it too. So the, the real impetus of this work that David and I did in this book was for me, chapter six, which is talking about all of the different roles the related service provider can provide. Right, not just direct services to the kids, but general educators as a professional expert on the 
the team, as a member of the IEP team, as a PD provider within the schools? And like, how can you navigate that conversation with administrators and school board members? So all of yeah. those I'm so glad you mentioned that. <laughs> well, and I, I think Lisa, to add to that, the, I think, again, talking about barriers, uh, not only barriers for the kids that we service and the kids that we're working with, but it's also the barriers of the providers. And so you talked about our role as PDs and helping with that PD. I actually think occupational therapists, physical therapists are some of the most underutilized staff members in a school environment. I agree. Um, And, but so many of it is couched within, well, the federal funding for your job says this, and well, the funding for your job is this, so the role is this. And so I really feel like, and and Nazi, to your point of Texas, Texas always has to do things differently. We might as well just embrace it. Um, But you know, when everything came down about dyslexia and now dysgraphia, that's been a huge sticking point of, well, Mm -hmm. who's going to do those services? Because ultimately, it boils down to there's not the funding for the occupational therapist. There's not the personnel for the occupational therapist to actually give and utilize, be utilized for those services. Mm-hmm. But what, I mean, we would be perfect personnel for that. But when you've got a school district that, you know, is servicing probably 30 to 50,000 students and they've only got five OTs in the entire district, there's no way that they could do that. And so I think that there's such bigger issues of how we can be utilized and support from state and federal government sources to say like, look, look at these people you have here. Look what all they can do. Um, And you're not even utilizing them. Why are you not utilizing them before we start you know, paying for more instructional coaches or different things like this. Why are you not using the staff you already have? Agreed. Absolutely. And David, I know you see this kind of on a bigger picture across multiple states. <laughs> not, not, yes, as I'm working with um, multiple state education agencies and uh, I do a lot of training with, uh, with principals and uh, there's just complete lack of awareness of what a related services personnel person can do or what their roles or responsibilities because many of these principals don't understand that this person will come and go from their building probably multiple times in a two-week period to come provide services and they're not sure really what they're doing but uh, and then i'm sure if they even provide good parking for them so it poses a problem as we talk about this is we need to think about broadly ensuring that everyone really understands what their the roles and responsibilities are. But I could not agree with you more about OTs being completely and totally underutilized. Absolutely. And, and uh, thinking about the, the fact that when we, and, and there, there's many things that we could do to alter a child's environment to help them that we do not do, but um, we ignore, we, and we ignore the, the, the knowledge of the OTs in providing us that kind of a, a, a guidance and assistance. So just to um, remind everybody, the book is pinned up top. That'll take you to the Amazon, at least, location where you can buy the book. It's called Related Services and Special Education, Working Together as a Team. And, um, you know, of course, it's got some blocks there to symbolize teamwork. <laughs> um, but... It really does, it's really like a a handbook where you can go through and find information about different kinds of related services and 
um, even about the terminology that's used and uh, some legal legalities of recommendations and things like that. Um, so definitely a good book to have in your library if you really, you know, want to know more about related services or want to get those questions and um, want to be able to refer back to something. I think that's just a really good book to have in your library. I've got one myself and um, I'm glad I do. So um, I'll open the floor to questions if anybody has any. I can say thank you really quickly, Nazi, because I appreciate your words about that book. We really wrote it to be um, a support, right? So you could do it mm -hmm. as individual PD. You could encourage your building to use it as a PD, maybe a district. We're hoping to get principals to kind of look at it too. We tried to write it in a way that made sense to the service providers, but also to the people who don't quite understand all of the work that's being done to support their kids. Mm -hmm. And... Um... I mean, even I get a lot of students following this and they'll listen to the replays too. I, I don't know. Today, I think this, the changes in the app, I, I usually have like three times as many people participating, but <laughs> I, the changes in the app, I think are just a little nuanced this week. So, um, but they'll listen to the replays and, and, you know, even students, they'll, they'll use this for their uh, internship hours. You know, they can listen oh to these and, or just read your book and, um, you know, write up a little summary for to get credit for internship hours sometimes we'll do well, that. If you're doing that encourage them to use the questions at the ends of the chapters um, and then we also have three example students so we have some case study students with um, relatively easy up to a little bit more complex related service needs and so we've provided those in the back with questions to think about too so yeah i love that you're using this with some of your interns that's great Eventually, I'm working on it. Everybody's been asking me to make my clubhouses events uh, continuing education. I do have something in the process of working with somebody to um, eventually they can give a little, a few dollars to a certain company and get their certificate for having participated. So, as I, I mean, I have it all documented who, who listens and who doesn't. Even if they listen to the replay, it records your profile of the picture. Um, so it's just a matter of going through and filing it with the state and getting all our certificates, but it's, it's getting there. But, you know, and <laughs> if that's some of that hidden work too, that's some of that hidden work that people don't even realize goes into it. But I really appreciate mm -hmm. that to support the sure. learning of the next group we're working with. Yeah. I just saw, saw the, you know, book come out on Twitter and thought, Hey, I've always wanted to do a clubhouse about related services. And this was like, Ta-da! Here's a book. About it. It's wonderful. <laughs> so it was great. So it was good timing. That. Yes, thank you. All right, all right. We got some chat people to chat. Let's see. Um, all right, Emily says she's looking forward to getting the book. Thank you, Emily. And all right, well, it looks like everybody's quiet and wants to go to uh, their their um, what is it party hour and. And happy hour. That's the word I'm looking for. For happy hour and dinner this Friday. <laughs> I didn't think of words. Right. It's but, also homecoming uh, on my campus. So things are very, oh, really happy right oh, now. Oh, that's, that <laughs> explains it. Yeah. Homecoming, <laughs> football, tops, everything. I know I had one person request that we do this after football was over. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, if go. you have anybody who has questions afterward or they wanted to reach out to us directly, I know mm -hmm. both Dave 
are very happy to engage in conversation. Um, I think our emails are accessible. Were they in our bios? Or if not, they can reach us on here now, too. Which is, um, let's see, I can put it in the chat for people. You get your emails up here. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, David, but you tend to offer your email and ask people to ask you questions. So I'm assuming that I do, <laughs> and I mean it. I mean it. I'm, I answer, and I answer, I sincerely answer questions because the better the better we can do to explain what's going on, the better we can actually provide services for children who have a disability at no fault of their own. Absolutely. All right. So Dr. Bateman is Bateman at special education, no, specialedconsultant.org. So Bateman. I'll just put mine in the chat. How about that? Yeah, uh, that'd be great. And I'll put his and then we'll, they'll both be in the chat. Yeah. David, do you want to use your special ed consult one? Is that the that's best? One, that, that's that. Yeah, it comes. Yeah, that's the easiest one. Okay. It's separate. It's separate from my work one, which is good. Okay, so. and I put my Gmail in there, which is easy enough, and it's also linked to the podcast that I do. Mm -hmm. So, who's interested in podcasts? She that's does it. a great podcast. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> a great podcast guest. We did a, a lovely conversation about time management strategies, and so yeah, we we enjoy that. So my podcast is called Think Aloud with Dr. G, and we just talk about people's educational journeys and things that are important in education. So feel free to listen. Oh, that'll be awesome. I'll definitely join. This also gets recorded into a podcast. So I take these and I do a little audio editing, take a few ums and static out and things like that. And then put, repurpose them into, <laughs> into um, a podcast. Wonderful. We'll share that. That's good. I, will I, need, all the, I need all the help I can get. So thank you. Sure. <laughs> I feel like I need an editor just in my daily life. So yes, thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm in Toastmasters, and they, you know, they count how many ums you do. Mm. I, I just imagine myself being on um, Audacity and cutting out all the ums. <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah, it's always a work in progress. That's if you did that with me, you would not have any much left to say. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. All right. Well, this has been fun. Thanks so much for everything. And we will, um, when I get the podcast version, I'll email it to you. Thanks. So Thank much. you so much. Appreciate the time. And, All right. Um, appreciate and enjoy, enjoy your weekend. You yes. too.